Let's go together to the book of Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 is where we're going to take our text this morning. And uh, I'll read aloud as you uh, follow along privately there. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16 today. I'm going to read just the first 12 verses together. Matthew chapter 16, verse number 1 to verse number 12. The Bible says this, The Pharisees also with the Sadducees came, and tempting, desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said unto them, When it is evening, ye say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky, but ye cannot, but can ye not discern the signs of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas, and he left them and departed. I love when Jesus did that. And Jesus like dropped the mic and walk away. Like he just said something, they needed to get it, and he turned around and walked off. But that's not where the conversation ends, though many times Jesus did that. He would simply give truth, they wouldn't respond, he would turn and walk away. Okay? Now it wasn't he really wasn't dropping a mic, he wasn't being rude. Uh, but he was done. That was the end of the message. That's what he had for him. Verse number five tells us that the message continues. Okay, so verse five says, And when the disciples were come to the other side, they had gotten, uh, excuse me, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread, which when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves because ye have brought no bread? Do ye not? Yet understand, neither remember the five loaves of the 5,000 or how many baskets you took up, neither the seven loaves of 4,000 and how many baskets you took up. How is it that you do not understand that I spake unto you, not concerning bread, that ye should, but that ye should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees? Then understood they how that he bade them not to beware of leaven of bread, but of the, leaven, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees, and of the Sadducees. We've got a lot to get into. We're going to explain it and understand it. More importantly, we're going to come to this reality that the problem that the Pharisees had is a problem that any disciple of Jesus Christ can make. The, the problem of the Pharisees is the same problem that you, each and every one of you, myself included, that all of us can make ourselves. Finish the poem with me if you know it, okay? Red sky in the morning. All right, so six of you. Uh, that's that's good news. Uh, in the last hour, our seniors are like, oh, now we know this one. And there was like a wave back at me. Okay, sailors, take warnings. Red sky at night. That, thank you. There we go. All right. thought I was by myself for a second. No, I'm just teasing. That is the reality, though. The, the poem. I learned that poem. Anybody remember where you learned it at? Maybe like a fifth grade, third grade, something like that. I learned it on the back of my grandfather's tractor. 
He was uh, one, we were riding in one evening after he'd been on his tractor and we we're kind of bumping along the, the ground out there. And he said, oh, tomorrow is going to be a great day. What are you talking about? Tomorrow's going to be a great day. <laughs> How do you even know that? He's like, well, you know, because red sky at night's the sailor's delight. I have no clue what you're saying. I have no idea what you're talking about. And so then he said, well, red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. Red sky at night, sailors delight. My grandfather had tons of those, by the way. And he knew every song to all the old, old like every word to all the old, old, old songs. And so anytime I was ever with my grandpa, I was always asking and making him say weird, crazy old man things that he did. And he just had all of that, you know. And so uh, anybody know the old song, Kalijah? It's about like a wooden Indian standing by, a, by a, like an old general store. Nope, I'm just an idiot. Okay, great. Um, there's like, like literally four people in here know what I'm talking about, so that's awesome. Uh, that's that's by the way, that's how I do things. I try to I try to get myself away from as many people and just stand over here by myself and know nothing in common with the people I'm talking with. Uh, it's my goal, so I've won. Um, all right, so Matthew chapter 16, however, Jesus uses kind of the same idea. It's the same. Uh, really kind of pattern, the same kind of method uh, as we do with red skies in the morning, sailors take warning, red sky at night's a sailor's delight. It was just a way of describing that uh, we recognize that the, the hue of the sky is going to tell us a bit about what we could expect for temperature or what we could expect for uh, things on the horizon that haven't yet reached us. And that, that's all it is. And by the way, I understand it to be actually pretty good method. It's not 100%, but nothing really ever is 100%. Uh, and so so they would use this little rhyme or, or rhythm to just kind of help them understand uh, what was going to be happening in the next, you know, 24 hours or so. And so it was a simple little tool, and I'm sure it was a big help to some folks. Uh, here they had the same kind of, of poem or same kind of idea back in Jesus' day. In fact, he even points it out for the Pharisees. And so he says to them in verse number, in Matthew chapter 16, why did I close my Bible? I'm gonna, yeah, you have to wait on me. Matthew chapter 16, the Pharisees also with the Sadducees came and tempting desired him that he should show them a sign from heaven. And this, is just, this was Jesus' answer in verse number two. He answered and said unto them, when it is evening, ye say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and lowering. Right? So he uses the same little poem, the same little idea that we use today. They were using 2,000 years ago to measure whether or not the next 24 hours would be rain-free or would be a good time to plant or be a good time to water, whatever it might be. That is how they would use this tool. And Jesus points this out. The Pharisees and Sadducees were a group of teachers who were really good at worshiping the Old Testament Mosaic law. Now, I say they were worshiping the law because Jesus is going to point out for us that they were really good at worshiping the law. They were not so good at worshiping God. They were really good at doing the things that Jesus or that God wanted done in his worship. They just weren't worshiping God at the same time. Anybody ever been absent from an event that you were at? Let us ask it this way. Has anybody ever had to sit through a graduation? Anybody in here ever had to sit through a graduation or uh, really actually beg God to end your life? If maybe that was what you were doing. That's what I've done. I've sit through. I know, I know that they've graduated. My wife's giving me that eye. I know that people have gone through them. Nobody likes graduations. Okay, nobody, unless you're like the one getting it, but nobody else cares. 
What? It's time to be honest. We're in the pulpit. The reality is, is that, no, truthfully, when you sit through events like that, those kind of events, or, or the preaching of a Baptist preacher, those, many times you're tempted to zone out, be one place when you're actually physically in another. Jesus is saying here, you do that with your worship. That is the worship you're doing. You are doing the functions, you are doing the, the actions of worship, but you are not, in fact, worshiping God. You say, how does he say that? Let's consider what he says. He says, you know that if it's red sky in the morning, that there's going to be rain. You know that if there's red sky at night, that things are going to be smooth for the day. You know that. And then his answer back to them is, you're hypocrites. You're hypocrites. Your hypocrisy is that you could know how to do little things in this life that would help you prepare for tomorrow but you're not wise enough to prepare for the days after that. You are a hypocrite if you could know from your weather app that tomorrow is going to be rainy, but you have not made certain that eternity is nailed down. In other words, he's saying you can plan for tomorrow But to plan for tomorrow is not just to take care of your physical body. To plan for tomorrow is to take care of your soul. It's to take care of the fact that you are more than just a body. You are more than just skin and bones. If you have not taken care of eternity, tomorrow is not ever safe. Tomorrow will never be safe for you. If we have not taken care of the issue of your soul, then you will have no security for tomorrow. You could get into tomorrow and know that tomorrow is going to be not rainy at all. Die tomorrow and your soul will be dealt with. So Jesus is simply saying, listen, we've got to have a longer term view of life here than just what's the rain going to be like tomorrow. And that makes sense, doesn't it? People try to do that all the time. We have a sense of this in our being. We have a sense that we should plan for more than just whether or not it's going to rain tomorrow. We have a sense that we should probably put a little money away just in case hard times come and uh, they shut down the government and everything else around us. We just have that in our being. We know now, especially over the last few months, we need to be prepared just in case the entire country could shut down. You just need to be a little prepared right? We, we know that we should prepare for a month or two. We've got that in our head. We know that we should probably put together a couple plans for, you know, what we're going to do for our children's college or what we're going to do for, uh, for our retirement. We know to do those things. It makes sense to do them here. And Jesus says, you're a hypocrite. No, 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 no. Not for doing those things. The hypocrisy is that we would plan for tomorrow and we would have no plan for life after this. We would never have dealt with the real value in life. The real value in life is not whether or not it's going to rain and you should go and do a particular action, but rather there is value in life that is greater even beyond it than what tomorrow or five years from today actually holds. So Jesus is highlighting this for us, and he is doing so to these these, uh, Pharisees. Now watch how he treats these Pharisees, and he's going to speak rather abruptly to them. I don't think Jesus was like a name caller like we understand him. He called plenty of names, but he's not ever being, well, he's he's not actually being very nice, but uh, the reality is that Jesus, he, he is confronting with truth. Recognize that Jesus will always barrier himself in with the exact truth. So what he says to these men will sound difficult. It'll sound mean. It's not mean. Jesus is being exact. 
He, he is being very exact in his approach to them. And even beyond what would maybe be socially acceptable, he is being very precise with his words. So understand here he's being precise when he says this in verse number, uh, verse number four. A wicked and adulterous generation seek after a sign. Okay, that's what Jesus says of these Pharisees. The Pharisees come to him and they say, Jesus, we want you to show us a sign. And he says, you know, you hypocrites, that tomorrow we'll have rainy day, you'll have a rainy day if the sky is a certain color this evening, and you are a hypocrite because you haven't taken care of your, your soul. Here's the problem. You are a wicked and adulterous generation. And because you are wicked and adulterous, you do not have a plan for your eternity. So this is what Jesus is explaining to them. Now that sounds very harsh, doesn't it? To just out and out call the religious leaders of his day. That was the church leaders of his day. He calls them adulterous. Now, thank you, Jesus. That uh, doesn't sound very nice. And by the way, even if they were adulterous, is Jesus here saying that all of these men that have come to him, that they have a problem holding on to the vows of their marriage? Is that what he's saying to them? Now, we do know that Jesus has the ability to know what's going on in their private life. The woman at the well came to Jesus, and Jesus knew not only that she wasn't married, but that she had five other men that she had been married to previously, and the man she was with now wasn't even her husband. He knew all of that about her. By the way, if you think that that's judging this woman, you're out of your mind, because the reality was he went on to use that, that, real, that truth about her to save her soul from a sinner's hell, the very sin that she confessed to, he forgave her for, and tonight, this morning, she is in heaven. She's in heaven forever because Jesus extended her grace, not because she was a woman, but because she was a sinner who needed a Savior. And so he is doing the same thing. We do know that Jesus knows about our private life. That's not bad that Jesus knows those things because he's the one that can do something about them. When he looks at the Pharisees then, is that what he's doing? Is Jesus looking at these Pharisees and saying, you're a bunch of adulterers, you cheat on your spouses. Is that what he's saying? Well, no, that's not actually what he's saying. They may or may not, but that's not the point. What he is speaking of here is their spiritual marriage that they are being unfaithful to. They are being unfaithful to their spiritual marriage. I remind you all the way back with Abraham that Abraham was, was covenanted with God. Jehovah and Abraham in covenant together. And the covenant went something along like this. I will multiply your seed, and I'm going to bring children upon children upon children upon children upon children to your lineage. And from those children, I am going to produce the very Messiah, the very Son of God, right? And so the Old Testament really reads something more like a genealogy that gets us to Jesus rather than the story of a bunch of one particular blood people, namely the Jews. It was a story of how we got Jesus, not necessarily who was in the book and who didn't make the book. They're not just a story of accounts of, of heroism and, and, uh, and you know boring stuff. It, it is actually an account here of Jesus and how he came to be, and there are points of, of high moments where we see great victories, and then just begats where we just read one name after another name after another name after another name. All of it is in there because Jesus is produced from this line, okay? So the, in that, the covenant that has been made is that it is a covenant between God the Father, between God, Jehovah, and the people of Israel. 
So here's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They are in a covenant relationship with God. Well, that doesn't sound very fair that they would have to be in a covenant. Well, they're in a covenant because they're alive. They are by nature alive because of a covenant made with Abraham all the way back when. They can thank their existence to the fact that Abraham had the wisdom to put their, their family line in covenant with Jehovah. The problem is, he looks, Jesus looks at these men and says, you're being adulteresses. You're being adulterers. In other words, you are not keeping your vows in this marriage. Multiple times through the Old Testament, God references the unfaithfulness of the people of God, the Jewish people. He, those who stopped worshiping him are referenced multiple times as those who are in adultery. So it's a spiritual adultery, not a physical adultery, not a, I broke my marriage vows. Rather, they have broken the covenant that God has with the people. Now, we're doing all this. It's all preliminary. It's all set up. Here we go. Jesus then makes his declaration. You're adulterers, and you will not get a sign except one sign. I'm going to give you one sign. Understand, here's the, the adulterers. The Pharisees are the adulterers. The Sadducees are the adulterers. Jesus is pointing out to them the problem of their sin. The problem of their sin is you have God. You have all of Moses' law, and if you, would, if you would heed the law, then you would undoubtedly become convinced of your love for God the Father. If you loved God the Father, Jesus explains this in the book of John, if you had loved God, you would have had no problem loving Jesus. Okay, so understand that. Why did the Jews reject Jesus as their Messiah? Very simple answer, because they had rejected God as their father. Very simple. Scripture is very, very clear on this. The reason the Jews had a hard time with Jesus is because they had a hard time with God. They were not living the, the life that they were called to live correctly. They were not following after God in faith, loving and pursuing, seeking after him, hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And because they were not in pursuit of God, they missed him when he showed up in the flesh. And Jesus references this as adultery. Okay? So Jesus calls out their adultery. No, 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 no. Not that they were involved in some physical adultery, but rather their heart had been given to something other than Jehovah, and it was identified that way when the Messiah came, they missed him completely. Okay? So Jesus has explained then who the adulterers are. In the process then, he says you get one sign. I'm going to give you one sign, and his name is Jonas. His name is Jonas. The Jonas, by the way, here that he references is Jonah. And you know through the book of Jonah, we got kind of an idea of the book of Jonah. But if you want to know what, what Jonah, what the importance of Jonah is, you could go to chapter 12. Chapter 12 references Jonah. How many of you all remember the story of Jonah? Remember the story of Jonah? Jonah is called by God to go to Nineveh and declare that God will save them if they, want to, uh, if they would turn and repent. They could turn to God and he would spare their souls. But no, Jonah doesn't like those people. He didn't like them. He hated them. Why? Because they were murderous and they would killed Jews, and they hated Jews, and they would destroy entire groups of people. They were genocidal and, and maniacs. And so jo Jonah had no desire for them to get saved. God said, go preach to them, and I'll spare their lives. Jonah said, what if I don't go? As if following God was an option. 
and instead turned and ran the exact opposite direction, was swallowed by a whale, vomited back up, and then goes and obeys God. And if you remember how Jonah's story goes, he goes in and preaches for 40 days, and the entire nation, the entire people change their heart. They will spend the next 40 days in fasting and in prayer, and they will repent of what they've done, and they will come back to God to follow him properly, and God spares their lives. Now, if that had happened to anybody else, we would be bragging about it for the next 120 years. You would not believe what happened to me. I was out, I, just, I got out of the whale, I came over, and God set the entire people free. The book of Jonah ends with Jonah pouting mad that God would spare these people. I knew that if I went and preached to them, you would be kind enough to forgive them. I just knew that's what was going to happen. And we end the book of Jonah on kind of a sad note with a little bit of a pouting baby because he didn't get his way. Now, if I was God and I wanted to tell the story about how important the people of the Jewish people were, I don't know that I would, I don't know that I'd put Jonah in the book. I think I probably would have left him out, right? Like, look, a thing happened. Yeah, Jonah was involved, but that's all I'm saying on the matter, okay? That's it. That's all. In fact, we're just going to forget he exists. I'm not going to put the book in. I'm not going to reference it. Jesus references him. Jesus, like, reminds us that there was a, a, a fool named Jonah that refused to obey. Not only that, two times he will reference himself in line with Jonah. So in chapter 12, he tells us that Jonah, just as Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man, Jesus, would be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights following his crucifixion. He was crucified, put in the earth for three days and three nights, and then rose again after his crucifixion. And Jesus says, it's just like Jonah. Okay, so he's referenced Jonah once, and then in our text, he references Jonah again. I want you to see the reference to Jonah here. In, verse, in, in Luke chapter uh, 11, it is the same exact passage here. Okay? It's the same exact story. It's called a harmony when Luke tells a story and Matthew tells a story that match. Okay? It's called a harmony. Luke chapter 11, we'll use this, and I'll, I'll read it to you. It's Luke chapter 11, verse 29, and you'll see some of the same indicators here, reminding us that it is the same story. When the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, this is an evil generation. They seek a sign, and there shall no sign be given it, but the sign of Jonas the prophet. For as Jonas was assigned to the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south shall rise up in judgment of the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the utmost part of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Jesus is explaining to us something very simple. He explains what the sign is. Remember he said, you're not getting any sign except that of Jonah. You're going to get the sign of Jonah. What do you mean by the sign of Jonah? You're going to get this. Jonah was a, was a turning point for the people of Nineveh. Nineveh was on its way. They came cruising through. They were heading to destruction. They were heading to God's wrath. They were heading to doom. And there stood Jonah. And Jonah held up his hands. He said, turn back to God. Repent from your sins and he will save you. And what happens? They come to him and they say, 
yeah, we're turning around. We don't want anything to do with the wrath of God. We don't want anything to do with the judgment of God. We will bail on our plans. We're turning around. And that's what they did. And the Bible says that this is the sign that God gave for the Pharisees. He didn't give them a healing. He didn't give them a miracle. He didn't lay hands on them and boom, now you can see. He didn't do any of that for them. Why? Because he had already gave them 5,000. Uh, they had already fed 5,000. He had already fed 4,000. He had already healed. He had already raised the dead. He was ruining funerals everywhere he went. He turned water to, blo- he turned water to wine. Excuse me. He has done all of these miracles, and they're still asking for a sign. Why? It is not because they couldn't see that Jesus was doing miracles. It's because their heart was wrong. It was in sin, and they had, a, had committed adultery against the God they claim to love. They were doing the actions of church, and they had no heart for the God they worshipped. They came to church, they sang the songs, they gave the offerings, they listened to the message, they sat there unmoved, and God all the while is saying, follow me. No, 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 live your life for me. No, I I want your life to be my life. I want us to share this life together. I want to have a part in your life with you. And they were cruising along, completely oblivious to the fact that there was a God in heaven that wanted anything to do with them, all the while doing the stuff that God's people do. What were they doing? Committing adultery. Their heart had a hundred other things it'd rather have than a close walk with God. They went through the motions and Jesus called it out for what it was. You've committed adultery with the God you claim to love by allowing anything else to have your heart. How do they know? How do they know that their heart isn't in the right place? Because they had no heart for Jesus. They had no heart for Jesus. Well, good news is, preacher, we've got lots of people that love Jesus today. There are whole movements of millennials that are out there loving Jesus. My, the part that breaks my heart is not that Jesus' name is being used to, to grow big crowds of people, but that the Jesus they describe has very little to do with the one the Bible says. Oh, they like Jesus as long as he's nice, as long as he does what they want him to do, as long as they answer prayer, as long as Jesus is going to be soft and cuddly and, and kind of weepy and just like a big boyfriend, you know. As long as Jesus is sweet and he'll accept our sweet love songs and he's not ever the judge and he never hates your sin and he never wishes for you to repent and turn your life around and stop going after the next thing that's got your attention. And as long as he doesn't demand anything of you, our world loves Jesus. He's just not the Jesus of the Bible. He's just not the Jesus who said, I am life. And all the other junk you're chasing will never bring you happiness. I am life. Well, we want to take Jesus and we want to add him to something we're already doing. And I tell you, that's fine. Go ahead and do that with Jesus. It's just not the Jesus of the Bible. You just don't get to take Jesus out of the pages, change him, put him back into your life and say it's the Jesus of the Bible. It doesn't work that way. So what the Pharisees have done here is they have rejected Jesus because they've already lost a heart for God. They didn't, they didn't have a heart for God. We know it because when God showed up in the flesh, they had no love for him. So Jesus then brings us to this turning point. And by the way, he gives this illustration here. Jonah was a turning point for the people of Nineveh. They turned and left. That was a sign. And then he goes on and he says, now listen, 
the queen of the south, undoubtedly, he's talking about Sheba, who came and, min- who came and visited Solomon and saw him in all of the glory and grandeur. And it, he calls her the queen of the south. The queen of the entire southern hemisphere was, had come up, and she was going to see this incredible work of, of, of God through the life of Solomon. And the Bible uses her as an illustration. Why would he use her as an illustration? Because of the length of space that she would go to to come to know the wisdom of God. She would go from the utmost part of the world and travel all the way to know the wisdom of Solomon. And the Pharisees stood in front of Jesus and wouldn't walk the six feet to get to know the very wisdom of God. He said, you have the wisdom of God. You know, I think the queen of the south would be ashamed of you. That she was willing to travel the entire circumference of the earth to know what I had to say. You have my very word in front of you, and you won't even listen to him. Oh, by the way, the same could be said for God's people when we hold God's word in our hand, and we're more interested in what we can click or where we can go online, and we're more interested in all the stuff. Even, be honest with you, we even get caught up in reading books about the Bible and just don't, don't, we just we just don't have time for the Bible. We, ha- we have God's word in our hand. We have the very wisdom of God in our hand. How much is Sheba going to slap one of us when we get up there and said, you had God's word? I had to travel the entire planet. You had it in your hands. And so he just says that. You'd be condemned by the, by the queen of the south. She was willing to go to incredible lengths to know me. And by the way, I'm better than the wisdom of Solomon. Can we get an amen on that one? Jesus is better than the wisdom of Solomon. He is all wisdom. And yet the queen of the south would have gone and traveled all the great lengths just to know Solomon's wisdom. He also uses another image. He uses the image here, as he says here from Solomon, he mentions the issue of bread. Okay, so all of that is Jesus getting us to this place where now he's dealt with the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he goes and gets on a ship, right? The Bible says he gets on the ship, and the problem is, is that once they're on the ship, the disciples remember that nobody brought lunch. I hate that. I hate being with Baptists and not having lunch. It's just weird. Right? I don't like it. So that's why I plan all of my meetings exclusively around lunch. If I ever meet with you at 3.30 in the afternoon, I'm probably going to try to do it around lunch. It'll have been my third. No, I'm just kidding. That's not true. The reality is, is here's, the, here's the problem the disciples are facing. They don't have any bread. They're on the boat, and one of them mentions it. I don't know how it happened. The Bible doesn't explain to us in, my, in Matthew 16 how it works. But one of them has reference to the other guys. Hey, you forgot the bread. Oh, who, who didn't bring bread? You're supposed to bring bread. We, who forgot the bread, you know? And all of a sudden, their mind, the disciples' minds have quickly left the lesson that Jesus just taught the Pharisees, and their mind is already on bread, okay? I've, I do the same thing. I do the same exact stinking thing. I've got this number one priority. Take correcting one of my children. You ever do this? Maybe it's just me. I'll be standing there talking with one of my children, trying to correct one of my children, and somebody will say something like, have you seen the keys? And all of a sudden, I'm wandered off, and I'm like trying to find the keys. My son's standing over here going, can we finish this first, please? Number one priority here, and I'm wandering around looking for a couple metal bits anybody could look for and find, and here I am completely missing the number one priority. That's the disciples here. We're standing here, you have just heard this incredible correction for the Pharisees, something by the which if the Pharisees could do, the disciples could do as well, and are doing and just don't know it, and here they are in the boat, could have been talking about, you know, that could be us. 
You know, the Pharisees had God right in front of them every day, all day, and we've got Jesus here. You know what? We probably could miss him. We could probably miss the importance of the Messiah standing right in front of us. Now, they're talking about bread. Jesus says, I imagine maybe just kind of a little blown away that they're still missing the point. And they're talking about bread. He says, hey, guys, uh, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Is he talking about the bread? Does he know you forgot the lunch? Great job, John. Right? Immediately, they're thinking it's about the bread. Finally, Jesus has to stop the entire conversation and has to say to them, I wasn't talking about bread. I am telling you to be aware of the doctrine of the Pharisees. Stay away from the doctrine, the leaven. By the way, that word leaven is so important because the word leaven in Scripture always references sin. He was telling them, beware of the sin of the Pharisees. Have you ever thought of that for a minute? That the Pharisees going through the motions of worship without focusing on God is sin. That's sin. (laughs) Hold, Hold on. Have you ever thought going through the motions of religion and not keeping your eyes on the one you're worshiping Sin? The Pharisees, I mean, the Pharisees, they're always blowing it. But the disciples were just as guilty. And I may not be just speaking of the disciples in this boat. Because do you know that you and I can do the same thing? Now, you'd say, preacher, hold on, that's not fair. How dare you say that me coming to church for what people think is sin? Sir, it is. Ma'am, it is. Because I'm, by the way, come here to South Mole Baptist Church, you're not coming to see me. You're not coming to be seen by me. You're not coming here to be seen by a friend or for them to even see that you were here. The, The goal is that you would meet with the Lord and enter his word. You would get guidance for how to live the next week of your life. That's what, that's what the worship is all about. The worship of God happens when God's people hear his truth and then humbly follow the truth. Sadly, many of God's people are tempted, just like the Pharisees, to go through the motions. Oh, they sang the songs, but they were thinking about this other thing. And, and they listened to the message, but they were hoping he'd hurry up. And, and, and they would listen to, the, they would listen to the, the, the scripture at the beginning, but really, did they have to pick that one? Why didn't they pick this one? And they, they went through the, you see what I'm saying? Like every little thing was an opportunity for them to worship the Lord. They could go and make their sacrifices. They could make their, their offerings. They could, they could give away their goods and alms to the poor. But it was never about, I want to love God by loving this person. I want to love God by serving this man. I want to love God by, by bringing my sacrifices to cover my sins. It was never that. It was always, I wonder who's going to see me. I wonder who's going to be impressed by me. I hope brother so-and-so doesn't wear his nice tunic today. Mm, he always gets me with that one. And they were always thinking about some garbage other than the fact that God was with them. And it's called sin. You say, preacher, I don't think it's fair that you call it sin. Okay, then I won't. Hebrews will. Hebrews tells us, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. That's what we're here to do today. And by the way, I encourage you to repent right now. 
if you have. Just stop right now and just say, Lord, not one more minute is going to be spent thinking about anybody else but you. I will not sin against you like that. And just turn your attention to him. This was the problem of the Pharisees. You have committed adultery in your heart because you went through the function, through the action, through the worship, and I never got your heart. And the way I knew I never got your heart is because you did not have a heart for the Messiah when he got here. Now, disciples here at South Knollwood, you and I are tempted to do the same thing. We are tempted to go through the same motions. Jesus used the illustration of, of, the, of the Ninevites who repented. He used the illustration of the, uh, of the queen of the south who would go to any length to have wisdom. And then he uses the illustration of the bread, which is a reminder. By the way, Jesus says to his disciples here, you're worried about bread and you watched me feed 5,000 people? Are you really worried about that? You, I fed 4,000 people with seven loaves and you're worried about bread? What is wrong with you people? Come on! If I wanted to, I could feed you this boat and it would be okay. I've got this. I've got bread. Why are you worried about bread? Worry about the state of your soul. Worried about what has your heart. Worry about the sin that you've allowed in. Worry about the fact that you can take good things and make them unholy. Worry about the fact that your flesh is wicked and would deceive somebody who claims Jesus and all of a sudden they're serving themselves with my stuff. Worry about your heart. We worry about bread. And Jesus already got that figured out. The Pharisees are over here committing incredible adultery against God because their heart is about everything else and they're using his worship to get it done. And God's people even today are tempted to do the exact same thing. And if I'm so honest, we have to fight to keep it from happening. We, we have to fight to keep it from happening. What is the, what's the solution then? Maybe, maybe we're going to have a revival service and we'll bring some hot preacher in here. He'll burn the place down. That's all colloquialism for he's going to preach really powerful. And we'll all get really excited and we'll get drummed up and we'll get encouraged and we're going to go out for the next six weeks and feel really good about ourselves. And then eventually it'll get old and we'll go back to it and we'll need another one. That's what we'll need. We'll need another one and we'll wind everybody up again. I'm all about revivals. I think it's great to have revivals. My friend, if all you've got is revivals, you're dead. You're dead. No, seriously, if I had to bring a defibrillator along and pop you every six minutes, you're dead. I'm just holding you up. That's all that's happening. That heart's not working. It is not going to make it. It's six minutes. You are not going to be on this earth long. And that's the way a lot of us live our Christian life. Every six minutes, we need another false something to prop us up to get another three feet. And what Scripture is pointing out for us, and what Jesus is pointing out for us, is that you cannot go down the route that the Pharisees went down. Quit the fake stuff and just make it about me. How? How in the world do we do this? Well, Jesus said it to the Pharisees. He looked at the Pharisees. He said, you're worried about bread, and you're not worried about the condition of your heart. O ye of little, anybody? Faith. <laughs> no, preacher, I have faith. That's how I got saved. N no, 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 no. That's not how you got saved. F yes, faith 
is what brings us to salvation, but it's not just for salvation. Can I say this this morning? Faith in Christ is life. Faith in Christ is life. It doesn't help you with life. It doesn't move you down the road of life. If you're not living with faith in Christ, you've not yet lived. You're not alive. You're moving along. you got motion. you got action. But the moment you die, you are separated from God. And the Bible makes clear to us that in the event of an unsaved person's death, they go to hell. That's it. You say, that doesn't sound fair. No, it is fair. It's very fair. If you recognize that you're a sinner today and God must deal with sin, then you recognize that death is the proper measure of it. The Bible even says that God can look on the suffering of those in hell and can do so appeased. He can do so with joy. It doesn't mean that he likes the suffering of his people. What it means is that the sin that was keeping them separated is being dealt with. It is being handled. So the question is, have you handled your sin? Have you dealt with the sin issue that has separated you from you, you from God? And if so, how? I did it in faith. Great. Then how do we continue a life away from the sin of faking it, the sin of Phariseeism, the sin of going through the motion? How can we prevent this? By placing our faith in Christ. The, this, this passage is prescriptive. The passage is not describing something, it is prescribing something. It is prescriptive in that any reader should read this and say, oh, my spot as a believer is not to trust more in my actions of religion, but rather to put my faith in Jesus Christ. And if so, let me ask you, if you really have faith in Christ, will you want to worship him? Right. Yet what do we spend our most of our time worried about? going to worship, getting ready for worship, going to the church, getting ready for... Can I just say this? It's very, 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 kind of just very simple. If you, if you have a heart for Jesus Christ, if you love Christ, going to his church house isn't a problem. It's just not. It's not a big deal. Christ told us he wanted his people to assemble. He called 12 of them, and if you think coming to church three times a week is hard, try living with him for three years. And that was his plan. His plan was that his people would not be churchgoers, but that they would be churchgoer frommers. The problem is, is we often get our mind and our hearts so focused on the things of this world that we don't ever leave the world to get away with him. So he never sends us away from church because we never really were there. And God is calling us to stop making our worship about a song. Make it about him. Singing will come along. Stop making your worship about an offering. Get Worship him. He'll take care of your offering. Hey, by the way, this goes right on into your home. A disciple's home looks different than the world's home. Why? Because I don't have to worry about my kids. I don't have to worry about making sure I get all of these things right. If I have a heart for Jesus Christ, I'll follow him, and he'll lead me in handling my children. If my relationship with my wife will become a priority and the most important relationship I've got, not because I sp- sat there and really worked hard at it and really made, really made something happen. No, if I get a heart for Jesus Christ and I keep him first, my wife will stay number one right where she belongs. And all of this happens not because of some to-do list given to you by your pastor, It happens when we have a heart for the Lord Jesus Christ and we keep a heart for him. If we will place our faith in Christ, we will have life. Life doesn't come when we try a bunch of stuff and all of a sudden the light clicks on and I finally have life. 
Life is Jesus. And to have all, everything Instagram says you can have. You could have the prettiest Instagram home. You could have the prettiest Instagram outfit. You could have the prettiest Instagram makeup. You could have the prettiest Instagram haircut. You could have the prettiest Instagram beard, which I really think you ought to go for. You could have the prettiest Instagram whatever and never have life. You never have it. And there are Christians in a little town in Panama south of here in a jungle they don't have any of those things, including Instagram. But they got a hold of Jesus, and they are living life. Can I tell you here today, life is Jesus. Everything else springs from that. And until we've dealt with the sin in our life, through the method that Jesus called for, what, what was it? how did he handle your sin problem? Jesus handled your sin by, problem by paying for the sin debt. That's what the cross was about, was paying your sin debt. I don't have to go to hell, not because I've worked some deal out or because I've got this thing figured out. My sin required death. Jesus took it for me. And ever since that day, Christ has offered me life. Have I always had his life? No, there have been plenty of days I've tried it on my own. I've gotten up, I did my own thing, I went through the religious stuff, I checked the boxes, all the while it was in sin. And for that sin, and for every other sin in my life, I have to turn to Jesus Christ, seek my forgiveness, and know that through Christ I'll be restored. If you're here today, and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you never called on him to deal with your sin, can I tell you today that the sin, this sin and any other sin, is handled by Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, just like he said with Jonah. He was buried, and for three days and three nights, he was under the earth. And at the end of time, at the end of that three, that three days and three nights, by his own power, will, and volition, a dead man's eyes popped open. Jesus conquered death, hell, and the grave for you and for me. And from that day forward, he has offered anyone that would come to him and let him have their sin. Preacher, I, I've tried to be good enough. Knock it off. Quit doing that. That wasn't part of the plan. Jesus is not looking for people who will do good enough. He is looking for people who will stop doing what they're doing and in faith come to Christ. My friend, I want you to come to Jesus today if you don't know you're on your way to heaven. Christ offers eternal life to any of you. You say, preacher, I've already done that. I already know that I'm on my way to heaven. Okay, then. Then let's recognize this. That living our life has never been the goal. Living Christ's has always been the goal. We look at our world. We look at the world around us. Their marriages are falling apart. They have heartache on every side. Sin is in their home. Sin is in their business place. Sin is in their heart and in their mind 24-7. And God's people spend hours a day trying to keep up. Can I tell you? Christ already offered you life. Come to Christ and receive life and live your life out of the flow of Jesus Christ's life. Forgiven for sins and washed clean with a pure heart and a pure mind. I don't have to try to keep up. I don't have to try to look good. I don't have to try to fit in. I can just have Christ. I tell you today, Christ offers that life to you. A life free of trying to fit in, trying to get, get identified with them. A life simply placed in Christ Jesus, and he offers it to each and every one today. I want to ask you to do this today. 
with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to ask you to just pray with me this morning. Online, you'd be praying with us as well. Why don't you just bow your head and close your eyes. And maybe the Lord is working in your heart somewhere along the line something like this. For those of you who don't know Christ as your Savior, could I ask you just for a moment, right where you are, just in the stillness, right there in your seat, and you look back over your life and you cannot think of a time where you and Christ did business about your sin. There's not ever been a time where you know you've had your sins washed clean because Jesus Christ dealt with your sin. You know that today, right here where you are, right there in that chair, you could pray something like this. Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I have tried in my own strength to take care of my sin. But Christ, today, I am convinced I cannot. Will you please wash my sin away? I recognize that your cross is what secured salvation for me. Something as simple as that, that little simple prayer right there, captures all that Jesus has done for us. Or maybe you say, preacher, I know I'm on my way to heaven. Then today, let us come to Christ and coming to him, just running to him, refuse to spend one more minute living a life opposite of faith or outside of faith. Just, Paul says, die to yourself and live in Christ. My friend, Christ extends that same life of faith to you today. I know I'm on my way to heaven, but I want Christ's life. I want his faith. I want him to flow through me. My friend, that's all Christ has wanted for you. Won't you pray this morning?